Let's turn to Psalm number 137. Psalm 137. 139 last week, 137 this week. And I'll ask you to stand as I read Psalm 137. I'll be using the American Standard Bible, 1995. This is God's, let's stand as, as I read it. Uh, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Hear God's word. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my mouth, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So far, God's word. Please be seated. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless these words, some comforting, some distressing, some raising questions in our hearts and minds. We thank you for all of your scripture, and we pray that you would apply this to our hearts even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some say that when we lead in worship, we should seek to make you feel good. Some say that we should make you feel emotional. Some say we should make you feel bad. Some say we should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Paul says in Acts 20, 27, that our goal is to declare the whole counsel of God. The ESV says it that way. All the counsel of God, King James says it that way. The whole purpose of God in ASB. Acts twenty twenty seven. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What is the whole counsel of God? What can I tell you for certain that God wants you to believe concerning him and what duty he wants you to know that he requires of you? Where can I get this material? How can I answer these questions about faith and life, about believing and obeying, about trust and obey? It's, it's all right here, here. Here, and, and only here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired or 
breathed out by God. It's, it's one word, God breathed. It's all God breathed. All of Scripture is God breathed and is profitable or useful for teaching, for teaching, for rebuking, knocking you down when you sin, for correction, coming you, bringing you back up erect after you've been knocked down by the gospel, uh, to, to stand you back up, and for training in righteousness. So the goal is we gather, as Dave and I preach, is not to make you feel good or feel bad or feel one way or another. The purpose is not to manipulate you in any way. The purpose is to declare to the best of our ability, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings, all that the Holy Spirit has caused to be written in the 66 books of the Bible. And to depend upon his illumination, shining his light upon it, upon that which he's already breathed out or inspired. And here we are, here we are in, in, in a book that has 150 chapters sort of in the middle of the Bible that sing their way into our souls. Are we learning from this book? Yes, of course. Are we experiencing emotions? Yes. Certainly, emotions that go with joy, with encouragement, with confidence, with confrontation, with conviction. We're learning how to express fear and longing and loneliness and rejoicing and answered prayer and not yet answered prayer in a godly manner. Last week we concentrated on Psalm 139, and we were awestruck at the omnipresence, the omniscience, and the omnipotence of God, using those three big words. This is not a race, do y'all know Ray Stevens? This is not a race Stevens, he's everywhere, he's everywhere. You know, uh, Santa Claus is watching you. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but uh, that's a silly song. And it has lots of problems with it. But, but this is a serious truth from Scripture that a loving, all-powerful God is present with you wherever you may go and wherever you may try to run. That was all from last week from Psalm 139. He's already there. For distance does not apply to him. Time does not apply to him. Therefore, rate or speed or change do not apply to him. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the, fly, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's why we can put our trust in all 150 Psalms, all 66 books in this book, the Bible. Change and decay and all around I see. O thou that changest not, abide with me. He's always ahead of you and behind you. The vanguard, the rear guard, he's always on both sides of you. He's always always in you. We've heard that from Psalm 139. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. 
If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold on me. We learned and considered that the Lord has all your ups and downs planned out. Verse 16, last week. And in your book were all written, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Psalm 139 told us that the Lord is always thinking about you. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. He thinks about you that much. When I awake, I am still with you. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, all of, he's got all of time in his purview, all, I don't know how better to say it, but all at the same time. <laughs> um, he is the great I am. He is above time, and yet he is intimately acquainted with every tick of your watch, every tick of your timepiece, if it makes ticks, every time it flips on your phone. And he's not hampered by distance. There is no from. Yes, you can certainly turn from him spiritually. You can rebel. And the great Old Testament term for repentance is is a term for coming home, turning or returning, shoes to turn or return. But getting away from God... Running from God so as to elude him, as as to get away from him, that's nonsense. He's the great I am. He he is. Now, that's a bit of a review from Psalm 139. What a comfort. God is for us. God is with us. Emmanuel, God loves us. The Father sent his Son. And so we can, as as we say, he's got this. He's got your life. He's got everything about you. So now we go to Psalm 137. Distance is close to us and distance is far away from us, for us. And, it's, and distance is overwhelming and distance is beyond our, our comprehension. We look at, very, at Venus and we're told that it's very close to us right now. It's really big in the evening sky. Venus, but it's not close to us, is it? It's, it's close, but it's, it's, distance is a problem for us. Distance is a well-designed concept that the Lord has placed in creation. And so is, is time, as we know. So if you think about distance and time, along with that goes memory. Memory, is, memory always pinpoints some particular time and some particular Space or place or location. Distance and time and memory. In Psalm 137, listen to the references to location and distance. For Babylon, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the Iraq area, in the in the meso the the middle of the potomia or the rivers the the mesopotamia for a location which is distressingly distant from jerusalem 
which, as you probably know as we read through it, you know it's also called Zion. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, a location, there we sat down and wept. Ah, here's the memory. When we remembered Zion, another location, and now that's distant from them. Upon the willows in the midst of it, that is Babylon, we hung our harps. For there in Babylon, that location, our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion back in Judah. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? See, it's this, this distance between, Bab- between Jerusalem and Babylon. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, they are, they're in Babylon and, and they're remembering Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The place for the people who are singing Psalm 137, the place is distant. And the time is past. In fact, when, when we sing Psalm 137, when the children of Israel first sang Psalm 137, they were singing in Jerusalem. Let's see, where are you? They were singing in Jerusalem a memory about being in Babylon and having a memory of Jerusalem. Y'all get, you got that? <laughs> it was a, it's a, they were a member, they were, when they sang Psalm 137, they were remembering a memory. We call the psalm post-exilic. It's, it's after the exile, after the 70 years from 586 B.C., 586 years before Jesus came, before he was born, when they were hauled off because of their rejection of God until about 516 when the rebuilt temple was dedicated in Jerusalem. They were remembering a memory. They were remembering a distressing time in the past in exile, during which they had remembered a time in the future, in the, in the further past, when they had been living undisturbed in Judah and Jerusalem. It's a memory of a memory about a memory. Now, don't you have certain situations, certain sights or tastes or smells that take you back to a particular time and place in your memory? For instance, when I bite into a cold, fried, home, home fried chicken drumstick, and it tastes a certain way, I am suddenly with Mama and Daddy and Ruth and with our oldest child, Wally, in a car seat that, you know, they didn't have all these extra things. The car seat had to be the car carrier, the carrier, it had to be everything, on a concrete picnic table and bench when I was a little too cold, <laughs> I had a cool breeze, somewhere in the North Carolina mountains where we'd taken Mom and Dad. And I remember, you know, when I have a certain taste, I'm right back there with that that cold fried chicken and, and potato salad and iced tea. A time, a place, 
a memory. All those memories you have of a particular time and place, we know from the Bible, we know from Psalm 139 and from Psalm 137 that God was there. What about the time when you were too upset to dial 911? Somebody else had to do it for you. He was there. What about that time when you, when you were so very afraid as a child or as an adult, as a teenager? What about the miscarriage? What about the death that turned your world upside down? God, God was there. He was there. The people of God, the covenant people of God had broken the covenant of his grace toward them. They had played the harlot in Old Testament terms. They had been unfaithful to him, committing spiritual adultery. They deserved punishment. They deserved destruction. They deserved hell. But the Lord had sent, and the Lord had sent one prophet after another, and they had not listened. They mistreated them. They killed some. They called them to repentance. And God, God had said when he established his covenant that if they broke his covenant and if they would not repent and ask forgiveness, he would cast them out of the land that he had given them and had promised them for so long. The Assyrians had come and carried off the northern kingdom, Israel, in the 700s B.C. Now the Babylonians had come and carried off some of the southern kingdom, Judah. These people had had brought their harps with them, but they could not bear to play. They were in Babylon. According to God's will, they belonged in Babylon at this point. They had earned their exile. And God was there. God was there. He was was in control in Babylon. God was using an evil kingdom to discipline his sons and his daughters. If you're in Babylon or in today's Iraq, you cannot be there or anywhere else in the world. Beijing, Sao Paulo, anywhere without God's presence. So this leads us to God's use of waiting in our lives, distance and time and waiting. When Ruth and I were in, when I was in seminary, Ruth and I were in Philadelphia. We went down to the University of Pennsylvania to hear two ethnically Jewish fellows sing about Jesus. They had a group and it was called LAMB, L-A-M-B, and they had a song about Psalm 137, and information as well from Isaiah 60. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept for Zion. By the moping willows in her midst, we sadly hung there our hearts. 
our captors said, Come sing a song of joy. How can we sing when joy is gone? If I forget Jerusalem, by my right hand it's cunning loose. Do you see how this meditation answers the waiting question? You're waiting for answers now, are you not? I am. I think the whole world, the whole world that's praying is waiting for answered prayer. The Lord has all power to end our waiting at any moment. If you read the end of Babylon, you'll see how easy it was for him. <laughs> and how it was all prophesied even to the people's name, to the leader's name that would come and would send them home. He uses our distance and our time to accomplish his ends. He is intimately acquainted with all our ways. Before we can pray, before we scream or curse or bless or groan, he knows all about it before we utter any sound. He doesn't just know where you are and when you are. He thinks about you. He's always thinking about you all the time. Your concept and my concept of God Almighty is way too small. I know that. God had promised that after a period of exile, which he told them through Jeremiah would be 70 years, he would bring them home. God had, God invented their privilege of waiting on his promise. Waiting. Distance and time and waiting. What is the first of the two biggest weights in the world. What promise cranked up the first big weight that is waiting on a promise to be fulfilled? Genesis 3, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between all those people who come from her, all of us that came from Adam and Eve, this one race that we're a part of, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. There's the cross, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's the cross. Distance and time and waiting. Adam and Eve rebelled. They broke the covenant of works. They deserved to die. Those are the specifications of the agreement, the covenant, 
covenant of works. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. This is before he was even created. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you, may, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Or the way Hebrews puts it is, Dying you shall die. You, will, you really will die. It was only God's mercy that they were given the privilege of waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. God invented waiting for the promise of a Savior. That's the first big wait. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They obviously could not get away from their creator and sustainer, but they began to wait on the coming of a Savior. So did their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. And two mighty cherubs, or cherubim, the I-M just means an S on the end of it, with flashing swords were placed to guard the path to the tree of life until someone with a capital S would come and make the way, the path of life, through the veil, through the depiction of these two great cherubim, to life eternal. Adam and Eve were driven out into a cursed world to live by faith, waiting for a Savior. And so it was for Methuselah, Noah's granddaddy, and for Noah, who was saved in the ark, the picture of the coming Savior, the picture of the church. And so it was for Abraham and Isaac, as the ram caught in the bush is a picture of the coming Savior. And so it was with Jonah, who was used to teach us about the three days, and from Melchizedek, who taught us that there would be truly a high priest, and for Jesse and for David, who focused us on little, the little town of Bethlehem, and for Ruth, who came in from the outside, from a heathen anti-God land, to find shelter in this little town of Bethlehem, under Boaz, who was also waiting and would be a picture himself for the coming kinsman redeemer or Goel in Jesus. And so it was for Micah who wrote down the name so that the scribes could tell Herod where to look for this baby that had eluded him, (laughs) although Herod was not waiting for him. And Isaiah added that a baby would be called Mighty God. And that he would be born of a virgin. And that he would be called Emmanuel. Oh, and listen to those who were waiting right there at the arrival. The beginning of the end of the first great wait. From Genesis 3.15. Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Not like Saul, not like David, not like Solomon, not like Jehoshaphat. Listen to Mary. How can this be since I am a virgin? Listen to Mary again. Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And listen to cousin Elizabeth. Blessed are you among women. 
And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And listen to the angel. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It's the end of the wait. It's coming. It will be for all the people. For the day, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Uh, listen to old Simeon just a little bit later in Luke. Looking for the consolation of Israel. That word, <laughs> that word is paraklesis is the same word as the word for the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the one that comes along beside, the one that comforts you. He was looking for the consolation. What was Simeon looking for? He was waiting, looking for the answer to that promise in Genesis 3.15. And he was told he was going to get to see him. He says, he says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah, or the Anointed One. And so this is what he says. He says, now, Lord, release, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And then old Anna, also in the temple, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And Karen Hodge spoke on Anna yesterday to the ladies here. So there's the conception, and then there's the birth, and the ministry, and the passion, and suffering, and the crucifixion, and the death, and the burial, and the resurrection on the third day, and the ascension to glory, and sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty in glory, and the first part of the Genesis 3.15 promise is fulfilled. Our sins are many and his mercy is more. Grace, unmerited, grace, unmerited favor, overcame condemnation, hell, and eternal suffering. And the first big weight of world history, W-A-I-T of world history, is over. Jesus came. Jesus is now enthroned in glory, having paid for our sins and crushed the head of Satan and been having his body bruised, suffering hell on our part. The end of Psalm 137 leads us to consider distance and time and justice. Do you recognize that our being saved is being saved to something, to eternal life with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. And it's being saved from something. And the end of Psalm 137 makes that clear. If there were a way to escape justice without coming to Christ, then there would be no gospel. And Genesis 3.15 will not be fulfilled. There are two great concepts being carried out here, God's mercy and God's justice. On a hill long ago and far away, 
that is a memory. We weren't there, but it sure has been described to us, and we are there spiritually, especially when we come to the Lord's table. On a hill long ago and far away, a time and place and distance from us, justice and mercy kissed at the cross. Psalm 85.10 says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But this is for those who are in Christ, who are not bound to this world, and who are looking for and waiting for the next. The covenant of grace provides mercy to any and all who are in Christ. And the covenant of grace presents justice for any and all who are outside Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. You may not want to hear about the justice due the enemies of God. If Christ's death on the cross means grace and mercy to you in Christ, it can only mean that there is justice and punishment from which you have been rescued. There's no terrible curse from the Garden of Eden to be finally carried out, if there is no curse to be carried out, then Christ's death is worthless. If it's okay to rail against God and to refuse to submit to Him and testify that you believe that He doesn't exist, He doesn't speak, He doesn't rule the world, then, and then, if you're still going to be admitted to heaven anyway, without repentance with the sons and daughters of God who've been adopted into his family, then there is no gospel. There is no hope. But 1 Thessalonians 5, if you meditated on that at the beginning, when they are saying peace and safety, that's when he'll come. The second great wait of history is still going on. We're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. His coming as judge. His coming. Justice. That is the whole background of the promise of Genesis 3.15 is still on the way. It's the second big weight of the world. God will be glorified in carrying out His grace and mercy. Praise God. God also will be glorified in carrying out His justice and wrath just as He always has been. The end of 137. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, Esau, who were in favor of the destruction of their brother Jacob or Israel. Remember the day of Jerusalem when the sons of Edom, our our cousins, said, destroy it, get rid of it, cut it down to the ground, raise it, raise it, cut it down to the very foundation. And then the evil Babylon Oh, the daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. The type thing they did in Israel. Do you realize that when we, when we go to, to see the Hallelujah Chorus or hear the Hallelujah Chorus, do you realize it's a, it's a long production? You probably never have heard it all the pieces of it. But it does start with Christmas. It focuses on the resurrection. It really is an Easter piece. But certainly it tells us plenty about the coming of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus, 
the coming of Jesus, it also goes to the end of time. Did did you notice that in, in Revelation 19? The hallelujah chorus is the response not only to the grace and mercy of God for the people of God who have been saved by Jesus Christ, but it's also a hallelujah at the destruction of Babylon. Not physical Babylon, that's already gone. But world Babylon that takes its stand against Jesus. Babylon is the evil heathen kingdom around the world, not just the one who went against Israel. All of Psalm 137 fits together, just as all the Bible fits together. Read and absorb all of it together. We are still waiting. We are still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. It too will be the consolation of Israel. But for the grace of God, you would be judged too. Your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is Jesus. Your family's only hope is Jesus. The world will not end well. Peter says that it will be burned up, reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction and destruction of ungodly men. We probably skip over those things. But the second coming has both parts to it, just as the first coming did. The world's only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is Jesus. The people of Psalm 139 looked back and longed to return home. We look forward to a home that we've never visited, but one the risen Savior has prepared for us in glory, thinking about us all the time and waiting for the fulfillment of the time when He will, as He promised, bring us home. Let's pray.